This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, consultants, and extension. In this series, you're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hi there. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Soil Sense. I am your host, Tim Hamrich, and we are diving into the collaboration that's happening in North Dakota among many stakeholders to try to build soil health and exploring what's working and what's not working when it comes to soil health building practices. For today, we're going to go to Wapaton, North Dakota, which is on the southern end of the Red River Valley, and visit Doug Toussaint. Uh, Doug farms in an area that's generally high tillage. They're very heavy soils. But about six years ago, he decided to get away from tillage to try to preserve his land long term. We're going to talk to Doug about how that happened, how that process has been for him, and what it's been like to reduce his tillage and incorporate some cover crops into his systems. Doug farms with his sons, Nick and Brad, as well as two uh, hired hands there in the Wapaton area. He was born on a farm in southern Minnesota and went to Alexandria for diesel mechanics. Upon graduation, he was hired by a large farm in North Dakota. He worked there for several years and after leaving his job started farming full-time about 21 years ago on his own. Uh, He used to just farm mainly just corn and soybeans but has certainly diversified his rotation since entering into cover crops but uh, now grows corn and soybeans for seed, uh, some edible beans, barley, a half section of grass hay, a couple hundred acres of alfalfa and some winter rye as well. Doug's going to start off by telling us how this journey into soy health started for him. I used to work for quite a large farm where we did lots of tillage, lots of guys, lots of iron, lots of men, lots of fuel. And when I got off on my own, um, I was more interested in not doing that much, you know, trying to save on some little energy, energy, trying to save on some fuels, uh, save on manpower. You know, I've got smaller acreages. I can't uh, I couldn't have all that equipment and things like that. Use what I got. And started looking and thinking and, you know, I've skipped a tillage pass here and I've skipped one there over many, many years before I started that. And it still worked all right. So that got me thinking and watching and got introduced to Abby and went to some of her um, seminars or whatever. And just what really tripped me into it um, I had a heavy piece of ground, having problems, working it, getting things done, and it just got worse. So then I decided I would get my ripper out and basically just rip it deep as hard as I could, as deep as I could, and fix this thing. The next spring, over half of it was a preventative plant. I had just destroyed the surface underneath. I had nothing to run on. I had 150 acres of a big marshmallow. I couldn't handle it anymore. So then um, the preventative plant got turned into a cover crop or I just started, I, I just, since that, that was probably five and a half years ago, six years, I haven't had a tillage pass on that field yet. That field is my absolute worst field that I had 
had on the farm. It's a Fargo Ryan clay. It's 65% clay. It's 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 hard dirt to work with. Um, put in the cover crop since then. Started with a small grain, a rye, and did some rotations and this and that. Got sunflowers into the rotation. And um, it's it's a wonderful field now. This approach of starting with the toughest land uh, is really smart for, for a couple reasons. Number one, uh, your downside is probably somewhat limited as you're you're not going to get a great crop off of that land anyway. But number two, if it works there, it's likely to work everywhere. In fact, Dr. Abby Wick, uh, who Doug mentioned, also remembers this first field that got Doug started on this journey. Oh boy, there was there was a cafe talk that we were at in in Morton, North Dakota, and um, and I remember we were talking at that. And it was like, oh gosh, why don't we just go look at the field and see see what this field looks like that he had in mind? And that's when we went out to this field named named Daisies, and um, and boy, it's it's that field is tough. I mean, it's one of those that we walked out there and I could see I could see some salts at the surface, and it wasn't too bad, um, but there were definitely some issues there. You could see there's a really high clay soil. Um, so I, you know, it was one of those things where we saw the field he wanted to start with and, and I thought, boy, we've got our work cut out for us. Um, but I liked Doug's perspective on it on, you know, I'm going to start with my worst field and I'm going to, and if I can do it on that one, I can do it on any field. And, and that's really when it started. And, uh, from there, we just started, um, sampling across that field. Um, it was kind of, I was there for, for when they, when they planted their first soybean into living cereal rye. Um, so that was really cool to check that out. And actually it was raining at the time and all of us thought we were maybe a little nuts to be doing it. Um, but, but from that point on, it was like that field was kind of the base of, of where we would meet and we'd talk and we'd look at things and evaluate the system. And, and so I really think of that as the foundation of, of kind of the, the soil health journey that they've had on their farm. The fact that Abby knew the actual name of the field unprompted uh, really goes to show how closely this group works together between Extension, uh, like Abby, and the farmers like Doug, as well as the the consultants and researchers that you hear elsewhere on this series. I just thought it was very telling uh, that she knew the names of the fields and asked, does, does she know the names of, of everybody's fields? <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny because they, that's how they talk about them. So, boy, if you don't know the name and you refer to like the the technical township section range or whatever else, it's like they you can't communicate. So, um, so yeah, I probably know the names of all of Doug's fields. I know where they all are, um, and I drive by them a lot. And yeah, it's it's funny. I, I I asked the history on some of these names too, and and I can't remember where Daisies came from, but I think it was like the secretary of the person that owned it or something. Or I don't know. There's all kinds of crazy stories behind these names. Well, whatever the field name, Doug continued his soil health journey by trying these practices on other fields. And this went against sort of the conventional wisdom in the area. Like I said at the top of the show, it's a heavy tillage area. And commonly, you'll hear hear farmers say things like tillage is absolutely essential in this area to get crops in the soil. In fact, Doug used to think that way as well. No, he used to think that way. And in that particular area, there's a, there's a farm... Um, they've been farming there for two generations and their most common tool was a Herman Harrow drag. And I just couldn't believe how they had some nice crops and not doing all this other stuff. And I just kind of watched that and kind of adapted that practice or 
we may have to scratch it or do something once in a while, but um, no, um, the yields have not suffered. We've been great with it. I think the yields have not suffered because now I'm getting 95 to 100% of the crop emergence. I have a better stand. It's working great. You might think that these positive results and the new changes in technique and approach would also be accompanied by equipment, maybe with a big price tag. But for Doug, that's not the case. We did nothing. We just used what we had. We made what we had work. We spent no extra money. You know, that was just after the $7 corn era. You know, prices were coming down, so it wasn't time to to be investing more. It was time to use what we had make it work. The biggest thing is probably maybe a little more patience, had to wait a little bit, but since then, no, it's it, it's a good piece of land. As you heard earlier, Doug had been farming a long time before he started trying out some of these practices. So I asked him uh, what, what he thought about all this stuff, uh, reducing tillage, cover crops, etc., before he got into it, and what convinced him that he was on the right track. Because as we've discussed in previous episodes, uh, the results can take a while. Yes. No, I've heard of people doing it for years, and I had nothing against it. I just haven't, I hadn't looked into it. To really see, you know, the value of it, would it fit me? Then I started looking a little heavier into it, and this piece was chosen to go first because it was my heaviest, my worst piece to work with. When I seen my wheel tracks from one end to the other disappear, I no longer had those. Now I had a full crop, and I could make it work on this unit. The other, the other units, the other parcels would be easy. Doug's been able to make this progress with uh, not just reducing his tillage alone. He's also incorporated a cover crop program. His program involves interseeding, so flying on the cover crop while his primary crop is still growing. Doug explains the process. We're trying to get as many acres as possible flown on with the plane. We start about the 15th of August into the corn and probably the 20th of August, we're flying it into the soybeans. I'd like to have that established before the combine ever gets to the field. October 1, somewhere in there. So when the combine pulls in, you know, I'm on the soybeans. We're doing it before leaf drop. We're doing it before the leaf's even yellow. I like to have it out there. It's usually dry at that time. To me, the leaves fall off, and they cover some of that seed and help us get going. And you can combine that um, that rye laying there underneath the soybeans sprouts and takes off, and now it's two, three, four inches high. It doesn't affect our cutter bar. I raise seed beans and, and food grade beans. We don't do any staining. It actually keeps us out of the dirt, keeps us out of the mud. There's times when the dew is a little tough or whatever, and you'll have them soybean leans will push, and you can't get it through the, the sickle, where the grass keeps it in place, the, the rye, and we just continue to go. Doug's approach to cover crops is a result of several years of tinkering with what works best, and it came with a lot of experiments and a lot of lessons learned. There was a 70-foot strip. We ran out of seed. Um, that's where I learned 
what cover crops did different things. Abby put in a test plot there where we had, I don't remember, 30, 40 different things, mixes, varieties, and we went out there with a hoe and a shovel and a pick. And every so often went and looked at it, and this would do this, and this would do that, and, you know, for three weeks the thing never come up. Well, we learned right there that there are certain things that would come up in a dry condition. There are certain things that come up in a wet condition, and it was quite the education. Yeah. A couple of years ago, well, we probably had 50% of the, car, the farm covered in cover crops, mainly the rye, and decided, you know, maybe it's time to quit spending money. That fall, I learned that Quitting the cover crops is not where to quit spending money. Just by the fields that were cover cropped and the fields that weren't, how different they worked, how easier they were to plant with the cover crops, where um, I'd rather have a cover crop that failed than a cover crop that I didn't do. Those are important lessons that often can only come as a result uh, of hard work and trial and error, which Doug has put in the work and continues to learn uh, from the experiments he's conducting there on his farm. I thought that last point was especially interesting about how if you're going to look for places to save money, at least in Doug's case, he didn't feel like cover crops was the place to save the money. Just too many benefits down the road. But what about work? I asked, did, did it require more work on these cover crops? Well, it's different work. You know, it's, I don't want to say it, you know, we're, we're not running the tractors as much, not as much fuel, not as many hired man hours. I mean, it, that first year it was like $40 an acre that I didn't spend. So then people will talk about a yield lag. Well, okay, I can have $40 an acre yield lag and still be equal. You know, maybe my bushels might have been a little bit less, but the dollars in the end were still the same. Then what I feel has been happening to the soil, I don't know how to measure that, but I figure I'm way ahead. There was an initial lag, I, I do believe, on my corn. But the rest of the crops, I didn't think there was any difference. Every question I had for Doug uh, was met with an answer of, of how these new practices were improving his farm, both in many cases in the short term and the long term. Now, it doesn't mean every experiment has worked out, but generally speaking, the changes Doug has made um, has certainly worked out for the better. But determined to try to find some sort of caveat, some sort of trade-off, I asked Doug about pests and diseases and maybe if they have built up with more green on the soil. I don't think any different than what we were. You know, I have a crop scout consultant that's excellent, been in the business for 40 years, top-notch. That helps me out very good. He's all on board with this type of farming, you know, helping his other clients get started with it also. There's weeds, there's weeds, but there's different weeds. You know, you're never going to, no matter what, type of farm you are, you're going to have some weeds, but there'll be different ones in no-till versus tillage or things like that. So there's still problems in both scenarios. You just got to figure out what your problem is. Mm -hmm. 
You heard Doug mention there his crop consultant, and and one just huge takeaway from doing all of these interviews is every farmer you talk to uh, is quick to point out the people who are working with them and helping them along this journey to build healthier soils. It really is a collaborative effort. Uh, Sure, the farmer is the one taking all of the risk, and that cannot be minimized. But this collaborative effort of people who really care about improving the soil includes uh, a crop consultant, like Doug mentioned the researchers that are trying to determine uh, what the data says about about these farming practices, and of course, Extension and Dr. Abby Wick, who's been mentioned in this interview. And I asked Abby to expand a little bit more about Doug specifically and the work she's still doing on Doug's farm. Uh, so we, we still have a connection to Daisy's field, his, his first field that he transitioned into some of these practices. Um, so out there, we look at cover crops in every part of the rotation. We do an intensive kind of grid sampling um, across that field just to monitor how the soils are changing. So, so we're looking at aggregation. We're looking at some of the salts, um, the salt layer, you know, or where the salts might be within the soil profile. Uh, we have done a little bit of microbial work out there, um, collected just some kind of archive samples so that hopefully in 10, 20 years, we can go back and, and, and see the changes that have been made. Um, so we, we kind of, we still work on that field. Um, and then we've expanded to several other fields where we're working with sunflowers on his farm. So one of the crops that Doug added into his rotation was sunflowers and it, it makes perfect sense in that area, a nice deep tap root that's going to use up some moisture. Um, giant sunflower seeds is right there. Um, but he's also got some other sunflower outlets. So it just, it seemed like a really good, um, really good fit for his farm. And then he was curious, or maybe it was Nick. Um, they've been looking online and seeing some different things about growing cover crops at the same time as sunflowers. And so we thought, well, gosh, we first we need to figure out a mix for this. Um, and so we we called around and we got some different advice from people and and talked to a few different people doing these practices. And um, one of them was in Kansas, and and another one actually is an editor with Successful Farming Magazine. And, um, and we talked to them about the mixes they were using. So we, we pulled those together and seeded those in strips um, on, on some of his fields. Actually, Daisy's was one of the first. And then we, we asked Marisol Bertie for her input. We called a couple of the different cover crop seed companies and got their input. And, and, um, and Jay Fuhrer, who's with the NRCS in, in Burley County, um, or the Minokan Farm now. And, and so we had these six or seven different mixes just seeded out there. And it looked beautiful. It was like all these different cover crops were flowering throughout the growing season, bringing in some beneficial insects. Um, we then evaluated what it was doing to the soil. We evaluated the yield um, on the sunflowers where we had cover crops and no cover crops. Um, and that's led to, I think, a three-year study now where we have replicated plots across several fields on his farm. And, uh, and it's just we're just trying to evaluate that practice to see if it might work, work for him. It's truly incredible how many experts all collaborate to make sure that uh, the solutions that are put in place are uh, well-researched and most likely to work for someone like Doug. But what about when Mother Nature doesn't cooperate? In years like this one, we're in 2019, many farmers uh, faced a very, very challenging year. I asked Doug how he was faring this year and, in general, what challenges he still faces in trying to incorporate some of these practices. Uh, we've been good. We've, we've had to scratch or tickle to open things up a little bit, but <clears throat> the present thing I'm seeing right now is we did not replant any crops at all. 
we had maybe 20 acres of barley that was just a plain brown, drowned out, but we didn't have anything that was crusted. Or a lot of farmers are doing a third of their acres in a replant. We've been in it long enough now where we have some filtration through where you know the water will go through instead of stand. And it's, you know, it's starting to look pretty decent. The trash, the corn trash is causing us a problem. We're not fully developed for Mother Nature to eat that up as fast as we want. We're leaning into the strip till for the corn trash. And we did some last fall. I think that'll be the avenue to handle that for a while, is strip till. But no, you just got to stay away from it or, you know, don't beat the heck out of it. Don't lay it on the ground. Keep it upright. You know, decent set of trash whippers. Um, with us, that strip till really worked awesome. I tried to establish some strips in the spring and some of the stuff we didn't have. Just couldn't do it. Our our soils are were so wet, so heavy that it didn't work very good. So I need to strive to get that strip established in the fall. In addition to working with extension and researchers and his crop consultant, Doug learns a lot by going to events and learning from fellow farmers. We spend a lot of time <clears throat> kind of self-educating, going to conferences and things like that. Um, the connection with NDSU, Abby Wick, um, the establishments of friends that are in this business also uh, seems to work out. There's always a tour once in a while. Oh, the farmer collaboration, you know, going to these seminars and, you know, just the old bar talk. You know, this farmer says this, well, you can't do that. You can't do this. Well, we're doing it. And even at these seminars, you know, or I've talked with Abby that, so it's going to be a Tuesday and Wednesday. Well, I want to get there Monday night. You know, the night ahead of time, the guys get together and we start talking this and that. And somebody's seen somebody else and somebody else. And you always got the Facebook and the Twitter comments that people are doing. And I don't do those two things, but the other people talk about it and just follow up from there. They may be doing exactly what you're doing, but now you saw this or you saw this. There isn't a recipe here. I mean, you're going to put your own recipe together and how it's going to work. Um, no, you just got to be open-minded and look at different things and be willing to change immediately. Hmm. You might think this is working, this practice. It's not working right now. We need to do something. My first priority is to get the crop in. And I might have to do something. And whatever it is, I'll, I'll do it to get the crop in. I love that way of framing it, that there is no recipe here. So everybody has to kind of figure out what works best on their operation for them. But that doesn't mean they're alone. In addition to all the resources mentioned, uh, they can learn from fellow farmers like Doug, who is more than willing to lend a hand. Um, I, I think one of the really um, unique things about Doug, and, well, maybe it's not unique within this group of, of farmers using these practices, but one of the things I really appreciate about Doug is that um, that he's really he's helping a lot of neighbors and and so for example if he's on a field seeding some cereal rye on his own field and the neighbor next door to him wants to try cereal rye he'll put in a couple strips for him 
um, just so that they can get the experience because he wants them to seed into cereal rye and, and find out if it's going to work. And so, um, so the way that he's incorporating his practices and helping his neighbors adopt the practices, um, if they're interested. And then he's also like with a lot of the, um, the extension plant events that we do, he's actually, you know, there, there'll be five or six growers that come to it. Maybe for example, we had a, a big workshop at Doug's one time and it was in a shop and, and there were probably five or six farmers that were there that were, they were kind of interested, but the big group thing didn't work. Um, for them to get the information they needed. So actually the next day, Doug coordinated, um, I think he made lunch for everybody and he brought those five or six guys back because they were all neighbors and people he knew. And and we just met and talked about ideas and that seemed to be a better fit. And so I think he's almost, I mean, I feel like I should probably pay him part of my salary because he's done so much extension work, but, um, but he's, you know, I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. He wants people to, to have information and feel comfortable getting that information. We've talked at length how uh, these things are a process. They're a journey to build these soil health practices that happen over time. But I wondered from Doug's perspective, was there one moment where he really bought in, where it kind of clicked for him and he said, yes, I am on the right track. This is the right thing to be doing. Well, I seen it immediately on the first piece. that From the severity that we used to hammer that thing in to get it done, it was a timely piece you had a matter of hours to get it in and that's just the way the piece was and then um no just a don't know that there's a drop dead moment but there was an aha moment to where that particular piece we waited for harvest waited and waited because i didn't want to wreck everything we had started but back to the thing about getting the crop in, you know, is my priority. Well, then so is getting it off. So I decided that we would go ahead and start harvest, <coughs> fix some ruts later. Went to the field. We started to combine. We had no ruts. My trucks were in the field. My service truck was in the field. And the neighbor across the road was combining with tracks. Couldn't get the trucks in the field. Was unloading on the road. And we're going up and down the field. I got Abby down there that day. And a gentleman flew over us and took some pictures. Where I didn't leave a print in my fields. Across the road, there was just super huge anaconda tracks from one end to the other. And right there, I just said, no, this is for me. So if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a farmer or perhaps a researcher or consultant or or someone who works in extension and you want to have these same sort of aha moments that Doug had with that first field, I asked Doug if he'd share a little bit of advice for maybe where to start. Uh, Align yourself with some good people. You know, there's been a a lot of people that helped me out that in the marketing side, there's always a marketer looking for a, a fresh marketer for a fresh source, and they'll help you. You know, your seed guys will help you. All these crops I had previously grown, but not so intense every year, you know. The wheat might have been one in six. Well, when it come time to choose wheat variety, didn't know them anymore. Had to start over, you know. Had to do a lot more research, and the research is quite easy. 
you know, with, with the computer and the, the data that's out there, and you can make some decisions, and there's people to call. Uh, I know if they want to try it or, you know, interested, so try a piece over in the corner. Um, do the cover crop thing. Start with the cover crops. To me, the gateway drug to cover crops is rye, cereal rye. It works, it's tough, it's winter hardy, you can deal with it, you can kill it, you can whatever you want. It's it may look like an animal sometimes, but it's not really. It's not really. It's just a teddy bear. I want to give one more big thank you to Doug Toussaint for being on the Soil Sense podcast and allowing us to visit him in his home at Wapton, North Dakota there and learn more about how he's incorporating these practices. Also, thank you to the North Dakota Corn Council for making this podcast series possible. If you've been listening and following along and enjoying this content, would really, really love it if you would go to iTunes or whatever podcast player you use and leave us both a rating and review so that other people can find this show as well. And maybe even just send it directly to one of those people. If you know someone who would enjoy something like this, share our show with them. Also, if you'd like to get more resources related to building soil health, head to our website, which is ndsoilsense.com. So ND, just like North Dakota, ndsoilsense.com. Oilsense.com. You'll have videos, uh, blogs. You can find all the episodes there and supporting material for this information. So thanks for sticking around all the way to the end, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Soil Sense.